Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. On this episode of ID the Future, we're listening in on part two of a recent conversation between Discovery Institute's Stephen Meyer and Oxford mathematician John Lennox. They're discussing Lennox's new documentary, Against the Tide, Finding God in an Age of Science, and talking about some of the stimulating encounters Lennox has had with other famous thinkers. The film does a great job of weaving your life story as a scientist and as a mathematician and as a person of faith into a fascinating narrative. And then it it unfolds in this conversation that you're having with Kevin Sorbo in Oxford. And and then eventually at the end of the film, you you both go to to Israel and the the Holy Land. Um, One of the things that I didn't know about you that I learned by watching the film was the number of visits that you made behind the Iron Curtain when it was still an Iron Curtain before the East East Block was liberated. And tell us a little bit about that. What, what, uh, what, what motivated you to go there and, and give those lectures? And uh, there was, there, the film has footage of you in these kind of secret locations at the time. It was pretty fascinating. It was extremely fascinating. And the origin of it, I think, so far as I can determine it, is I've been interested all my life in people that hold diametrically opposite worldviews to myself. Now, in in the West, in England and the United States, one met it in the academy. But going to Eastern Europe opened up the possibility for me to see what this kind of worldview does in society, what its cultural effect is. And In the earlier days, in the 1970s, I frequently went to the German Democratic Republic. And of course, that was hard atheism, hard Marxism. And I mainly went there, actually, as a Christian teacher to the churches to encourage them because they had very few intellectuals in the Christian ministry for the simple reason that kids who would not swear allegiance publicly to the atheistic state at the age of 13 or 14 were not allowed to do any further study. They couldn't go to university, right? Yeah. No, they couldn't. So very few got to university. And so that was an immense learning curve and a huge privilege to do that. It was only after the wall fell that I started going to the former Soviet Union. But in those early days... I could see exactly the effect of atheism. And what it taught me was that people like Richard Dawkins and so on have not got a clue, not a clue. Uh, Otherwise, they'd be much more careful to evaluate their position. They are living really on the basis of the Judeo-Christian legacy in culture that founded the universities they worked in, and certainly Oxford and Harvard and many other universities around the world, and afford them the luxury of the freedom to speak about these things. But the philosophy they were spouting, and still are, would actually close that down. And you saw that actually happening in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. So this was an immense um, 
opportunity for me, though I had no idea of it at the time, to be able to go out and face Hitchens and Dawkins and Peter Singer and all the rest of them with some kind of knowledge of what it's like to see this kind of stuff in practice. That's excellent, John. Let's, uh, you, you, you're mentioning uh, your mention of the university as an institution, I think is really important to literally means uni veritas, right? One truth. And it was a yes. the university was a Christian invention uh, that uh, was meant to explore the unity of truth under God. Uh, uh, our university, uh, Harvard, has the motto for Christ in his church and was founded by a Cambridge Puritan, John Harvard, who came to Yes, the- he went to my old college at Cambridge, yes. Emmanuel. Yes. You were at Emmanuel. Okay, wonderful. Yes, I was. Yes. So, so, I mean, this is a, it's a very, when we think about going against the tide, the people who are men and women of science, who are also men and women of faith, we're not always going against this tide. Science seemed to science started in a different milieu or intellectual context. And I know you've often said that you're not ashamed to be a Christian and a scientist because. Uh, Christianity gave you your 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 discipline. Tell us a little bit more about That's that. That's absolutely right. And historians of science, like yourself, and philosophers of science, seem to be in wide agreement with slight differences for nuances. The fact that there's an intimate connection between the monotheistic worldview coming out of Judaism and Christianity and the rise of science. And I couldn't put it any better than C.S. Lewis did when he said men became scientific because they expected law and nature, and they expected law and nature because they believed in the lawgiver. In other words, the Genesis account gave them the rationale Uh, to do science. They believed science could be done because it was the product of a rational mind, the mind of God, and they were made in the image of God, and so they could therefore do it. And that's one of my big objections to atheism, is it it gives really no grounds to trust our rationality. I sometimes say these days, Steve, Christianity, Christian theism, and science ride perfectly well together. But I'm concerned about atheism and science. That doesn't seem to work together so very well. Although, of course, atheists can do brilliant science. And I discovered uh, quite recently, actually, that between 1900 and 2000, over 65% of all Nobel Prize winners in science were believers in God. Mm -hmm. God is not dead in, in the scientific world. But the trouble is the general public don't know that. It's absolutely true. And one, one of the, uh, the key premises that I think gave rise to modern science and which atheism threatens is the, the trust in the reliability of the human mind. That's correct. One, and one that's the, very important. Yeah, the, the whole idea that, that was important to Newton and Boyle and Kepler was the intelligibility of the world. That it we was. Can understand it because it was made by the same rationality namely the mind of God, who made our minds in such a way as to understand the order and the lawfulness and the design that had been put into the world. And I think and that, Einstein was clever enough to see there was a problem yeah. when he said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. But that's where Christian theism, biblical worldview, gives a, a reason 
that atheism by definition cannot supply. And therefore, the explanatory power of Christian theism is very much more powerful than the atheistic worldview supplies. In, in the film, you, you talk a, a, a bit about this, but you also talk not just about the presuppositions that come from the, the theistic worldview that made science possible, but also some of the discoveries of the last hundred years or so that are, are in a way pointing back to God. And uh, this comes up very naturally in some of your several conversations with uh, the on-air host, Kevin Sorbo. But why don't we talk about, it might be good to talk about some of those discoveries. You talk a bit in the film about the discovery that the universe had a beginning. How, did, how does that affect our, what, what are the worldview implications of that in, in your view? Well, to go back a bit, uh, we mentioned I was in Cambridge in the 1960s. And I remember so well when the world of cosmology and physics was discussing the possibility of there being a beginning, which had been suggested by Georges Lemaitre, who was a Catholic priest, actually, in an earlier generation. But now the evidence was piling in. And one of the things that really struck me at the time was the editor of Nature, the most prestigious scientific periodical in the world, resisted this as one of the leaders of the United Kingdom scientific establishment. And he said something like this. He said, we, we can't afford to go down this road of a beginning because it'll give too much leverage to people who believe in a creator. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the irony of that is so obvious. One of the most brilliant discoveries of the 20th century um, which led to the standard model of the hot big bang was resisted because it seemed to parallel scripture. And I therefore feel, and Dawkins brought this up against me, he said, what's the big deal? I mean, either there was a beginning or there's not. And if you're guessing, it's 50-50. But I said, you know, it wasn't decided by guesswork. It was decided by brilliant science and the conclusion was resisted. And to people that say, look, anything that comes from the biblical worldview is useless from a scientific perspective, I say two things. One, yes, the Bible is, technically speaking, pre-modern science. It is not a textbook of science, but it talks about the same universe that scientists study. And for centuries, while people were still buying into Aristotle's steady-state universe that had no beginning, the Bible was saying it had a beginning. Right at the beginning of the 20th century, in fact. It was the that, that's absolutely. Well, up to 1960s, they had yeah, no evidence. Yeah, yeah. And I say that is a hugely important fact. And I dared to say at a conference um, where I can't really tell you where it was or who was there, but some physicists of great fame got very cross with me and interrupted a little talk I gave. And they said, Professor Lennox, please tell us you were joking when you said the Bible had something to say to us in the 21st century. And I said, I wasn't joking. In fact, they said, of course, I agree with you, the Bible is pre-modern scientific, but it's talking about the universe. And incidentally, if the scientific fraternity 
the intellectual fraternity had taken its worldview more seriously than it did, it might have looked for evidence of a beginning earlier than it did, because on the basis of the worldview, you could make a prediction. Just as on the basis of the Aristotelian worldview, the prediction was made is the universe was eternal. And um, there was a bit of silence after that. They hadn't quite thought of this. So therefore, I feel this is hugely important as a fact, which at least with the modern state of science, there is a convergence. Of course, we know that science changes, but that's not the only issue it raises, because if there was a beginning, and I mean a beginning to whatever you think the whole thing is, a universe or a multiverse and so on, there's a Matter, finiteness space, backwards time in time. And energy, right. right. Yes, there's a yeah. finiteness backwards in time. It raises the causal question. You cannot exactly. Absolutely, it. yeah. And if, if matter itself is part of what comes into existence, you can't offer a materialistic cause for the origin of the universe. because that's, no that's, um, That yeah. is so obvious that yeah. I know many professors who cannot see it. Yes, yes, I do know. I know a few myself, John, but I'm fascinated just by the way your own story intersects some of these great discoveries, because, of course, Hawking was in his uh, PhD years when you were an undergraduate. And Correct. He, he was writing his thesis on black hole physics, and he had that brilliant chapter, chapter four in his thesis, about the singularity theorem. Yes, and, that's right. and that was, uh, the, in a sense, the, uh, the mathematical uh, proof of a beginning, that, uh, a development within theoretical physics that converged with all that observational evidence from astronomy to, to really cinch the, the point that the universe must have must have begun. And that happened in Cambridge when, when you were there. It's kind of that did uh, indeed. Yeah. It did indeed. And I remember Stephen Hawking. I never met him, but I remember him walking around with the limp that indicated sadly the onset the yeah. of of his disease. Well the other the other extraordinary discovery that was made in Cambridge uh, was actually there were two and you you discussed them both in the in the film but the was the discovery of the fine-tuning. Sir Fred Hoyle, the great astrophysicist, spent a good deal of time in Cambridge, and he was one of the first physicists to realize how delicately balanced the universe was to allow for the possibility of life, all these different parameters that were just right. And I wonder if you uh, ever encountered Hoyle, or, or uh, if you could, in more general terms, just tell us about the fine-tuning of, of the physical parameters that make life possible and what that has to tell us about about the possibility well, of God. The fine-tuning of the universe is hard science. And in the last, I suppose, must be nearly 100 years now, people realized that so many of the fundamental constants and fundamental parameters of nature have to be accurate to an astonishing degree of precision in order to have carbon-based life. And Sir Fred Hoyle, he was interested in carbon itself. How do you get so much carbon? And he predicted that there would have to be a certain resonance. We needn't go into what that exactly is. And really, I, I think, but maybe I'm biased, he should have got the Nobel Prize when that resonance was discovered. And he said that nothing had shaken his atheism so much as discovering that 
as he put it, it seemed as if a super intellect had monkeyed with uh, physics. And uh, he had that sense, a profound sense of the whole thing was, did he call it a fix? Now, I did meet him. I met him later because when I was in the University of Wales, one of my colleagues was Professor oh, Chandra, Chandra Wickramasinghe, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Who was the astrophysicist or astrobiologist, as he calls himself these days? And he and Hoyle were very friendly. And Hoyle came down to Cardiff just after I had met Wickramasinghe. And Wickram Singh had been off to the United States where he'd taken part in the creation trial. I think you might have been part of that one too. And he said to me, it's a pity that people, they're so nice, he said, the Christians that I met, but they're so naive that they take the Bible seriously, you see. And I said, well, Chandra, so do I. And he looked at me with horror and he said, you're not one of them, are you? Well, I said, I don't know. And he threw me the chalk. I'll never forget it. And he said, prove it to me. So I went to the blackboard and I wrote on his blackboard, and God said, let there be light. And he laughed uproariously. Yes, he said, you are one of them. This is absolutely naive. Do you think God has a voice box and lungs like we've got? Well, Chandra, I'll spell it out a bit more for you. So underneath I wrote, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. All things came to be through him. He said, what does that mean? Well, I said, word that conveys ideas of command, intelligibility, information. And he stopped. He said, did you say information? I said, yes, of course. He said, you're not telling me, are you, that the Bible contains the idea of information? Well, I said, you tell me, what does it look like? You see. And he said, does Fred Hoyle know about this? And I said, I haven't a notion. Well, he said, listen, the next time he comes down, I'll invite you to meet him and we'll tell him. So I said, fine. Well, Hoyle came down and it was, so far as I recall, it was the famous occasion where he stood up and said that he'd done the calculations uh, mathematically. And it was obvious to him and it was an easy calculation. I have his notes actually here in the form he wrote them out, that evolution could never have produced anything on Earth because there just wasn't enough time. So he dropped the bombshell, life came from outer from space, panspermia. Yes, right. Right. And I've never seen, so there were hundreds of people there, of course, the whole academic uh, <laughs> cohort in Cardiff, there was a collective drawing of breath and all the rest of it. So I later met Hoyle with Chandra, and Chandra told him, uh, and he said, what are you saying? I'm saying that one of the few but very important things that are said about creation is that it was a speech act, and God said, and this is summarized at the beginning of John's Gospel, and it's telling us that this is not a mass energy-based universe. As atheists, it's a word-based universe, yep. which is the exact opposite. So that the, the biblical worldview is that word is primary, mind is primary, mass, energy, or derivative. The atheist worldview is the opposite. Oh, he said, 
the idea of information, I thought that only went back to Shakespeare. <laughs> this very well. And I said, Anna. well, yeah. it yeah. actually goes back uh, 20 centuries to the New Testament. Unfortunately, I never got the chance to follow it up with him later. Yes, or, or Psalm 19 in the old, you know. The, well, sure, yes. Right, and pour forth speech. That was part two of a conversation between philosopher of science Stephen Meyer and British thinker John Lennox. To learn more about the November 19th premiere of Against the Tide, go online to againstthetide.movie. That's againstthetide.movie. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.